The Top 100 Clubhouse Podcast is brought to you by Eden Mill, bringing the tradition of distilling whiskey and gin back to St Andrews, the home of golf. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Top 100 Clubhouse, the ultimate podcast for golf course enthusiasts worldwide. I'm your host, James Henderson, and we're about to embark on a journey through lush fairways and breathtaking landscapes, as well as delving deep into the minds of fascinating individuals from every corner of the golfing universe. Get ready to explore the world's top golf courses through the eyes of those who know them best. This week in the pod, we have David McClay-Kidd. David is one of the top architects in the world and also a great bloke, very honest and open guy. So we talk about a number of different issues within golf architecture. Genuinely, some of the best answers I've ever heard. I hope you enjoy. Right, David. Thank you very much for coming on. It's great to have you on the podcast. My pleasure. Um, yeah, well, God, it's uh, I'm meeting one of my heroes. <laughs> it's, really? Uh, yeah, I, I, I love what you're doing. For a Scotsman, seeing Scottish golf architect doing well on the world stage is a very, uh, it's a proud moment. Well, there's not many of us. No, there's not. And um, I'd love to start off with uh, learning how you first got into it. How did you? Well, son of a greenkeeper. It's, it's an easy answer. My dad, uh, my both my mother and my father were born and raised in Bridgeweir uh, on the west side of Glasgow. And my dad at 14 uh, went to work at Ranfurly Castle Golf Club as a 14-year-old in the early 60s. Uh, no, it must have been the late 50s. Uh, and he worked his way up and was a smart kid ended up at Glasgow Golf Club, which I believe is the sixth or seventh oldest club in the world. Uh, he went there and mentored under the, the the head greenkeeper for a short time, like a year, maybe two years at the very most. And then the guy died. All of a sudden, he had like a heart attack and died. Uh, and wow. the club were at a loss to figure out what to do. And the 21 or 22-year-old assistant, my father... Uh, they said, well, we'll give this kid a chance and see if he can he can cut it. So my father at 22 was the youngest head greenkeeper in Scotland, uh, which was extremely unusual back in the 60s. Am I right uh, in saying, is that the, did Glasgow have both courses at the time as well? They had the inner city course and the Lynx course. So it must have been a real. Did. They did, That's... but he was only in charge of Glasgow Golf Club, okay, which is in actually in Mulgay, Bears Den, that kind of area. Uh, so he was only in charge of that one. Uh, so I was born literally next to you know the golf course and spent my early childhood in and around Glasgow Golf Club until I was twelve, something like that. So then my dad uh, took the job at. Uh, Kilmacomb Golf Club, which is close to Bridge of Weir for James, who's a Scotsman and might know where these places are. My friend who uh, plays off uh, Scratch is a Kilmacomb member. So my dad was the head greenkeeper there for three or four years. And then the job at Glen Eagles came up in the mid 80s. And my dad got the job as director of, well, not director of golf, the sort of director of agronomy, whatever you want to call it, courses manager for all of the golf at Glen Eagles. And so when I was 15, the family up sticks again 
and moved to Ochterarda in the middle of Scotland. And my dad was brought in by the new owners because it was originally owned by the railroad company. And it had been left to go to kind of rack and ruin between the Second World War and the late 70s. And he came in and he started to restore the golf courses. And he found all these old plans that Braid had drawn. And he'd go out in the on the golf course and he would find these old shapes way off in the trees. And he'd figure out like this was the original green. And so he'd chop all the trees down and rebuild the green out there or a set of tees or bunkers that had been lost. And so there was this restoration process going on uh, in the early years that he was there, probably the first decade or so that he was there. He was restoring the kings and the queens. And then by the early, late 80s, early 90s, they were building the Nicholas course that then held the Ryder Cup. And so all of this was feeding into my experience as this young teenage boy, loving golf, loving everything about the game. My dad's restoring this old James Braid course. He's working with Jack Nicholas to build what then became the Ryder Cup venue. So my life was just revolving around this world of golf course maintenance, golf course restoration, golf course new construction. And so it was almost inevitable that I would be sucked into that orbit. I absolutely loved it. And I went to college in England. uh, And in my intern year, I had to take a year off and go work in the industry. My dad, by that point, was pretty good friends with uh, Ron Kirby and Jack Nicholas, who were the powerhouses behind Nicholas Design. And Ron Kirby, who just recently passed, by the way, sent me to Collingtree Park Golf Club, which was a Nicholas design, but not really called a Nicholas design. It was a, a Johnny Miller's name was on it. And I worked on that for a year or so. Uh, and that really secured my passion for golf course construction and design. And I was I graduated college when I was 21. And I went to work for Howard Swan, uh, who's a, an English-based architect, Worked for him for a couple of years, and then the story, I could go on and on. I end up at, at uh, Bandon Dunes in my mid to late 20s, uh, and I guess you probably know the story from there. Well, th- interestingly, I want to go a wee bit more into Bandon, because when you uh, when you arrived and were met with the Kaisers and uh, were, offered, were shown the piece of land, um, what you're obviously against other big architects names and as a young guy who was start not starting out but was very early in your career how did you feel when you got given that uh, piece of property to build something fantastic well funny you should say the kaisers because the two boys michael and chris were probably still in diapers at that point so uh, <laughs> i'm not sure they I, I don't think i knew either of them they were literally little kids at this point this is pushing <laughs> 30 years ago uh, so Mike Kaiser was my age now. So Mike Kaiser was in his mid fifties at that point. I was 26 when I first met him. Uh, and I met him with my father who, who's the same age as Mike. So my, my father was probably 55. Uh, and we toured the land and my father and Mike cre- uh, quickly became fast friends. Uh, my Mike totally respected my father and everything about his greenkeeping knowledge in Scotland. Uh, and so I think Mike figured that the apple wouldn't have fallen far from the tree. 
he also probably figured that my father wasn't going to let his only son fail. Yeah. Uh, and I was full of piss and vinegar about design and construction. So I, uh, I don't know that I was really aware that I was potentially competing against the biggest, baddest architects on earth. I, I figured I was, you know, a, a simple Scott that I probably didn't stand a chance. And so I, I made my impassioned plea to Mike that if he was going to build a golf course in the theme of Lynx courses in Scotland and Ireland, you know, this is what he would have to do. And I painted it out, you know, no carts, walking only, clubhouse set back from the water, rumply fairways, fescue grasses, pot bunkers. You know, I, I painted this whole scenario out and literally the people with them laughed out loud. I mean, the, the idea of building this in America was so ridiculous to think that any American would come and play in southwest Oregon, which does not have the best of weather. It's like the west coast of Ireland and do so in wet, cold discomfort uh, on a golf course that was certainly not fair by American standards was no. a joke. And the only person that really thought it wasn't a joke was probably Mike. But he was writing the check. So when I painted out this whole scenario, he nodded his head. Everybody else kind of chuckled. Uh, and yet I, I was saying the very things that Mike wanted to hear. And I might have been the only one saying it. Every other architect he spoke to, I'm guessing, wasn't that blunt. Yeah. Uh, probably tried to say, yes, I can build a Lynx course and I can still do it with cart paths. And I can still do it with bent grass. And I and of course you'd put the clubhouse out on the the water and sit in in the nice warm dining room and look at the beach with the ba- the breakers crashing. I mean that was this that was such the obvious answer, and yet the very answer Mike probably did not want to hear. He intuitively knew that what I was saying was actually reality. Was that was the going to be the thing that made it real. Uh, was creating discomfort, I guess. And, and so we built it and, and it proved out. Americans and, other, and others flock from around the world and around the country to go get wet in January and play golf at Bandon in the, in the driving wind. And they love it and they keep coming back. It's that um, Bandon was really a starting point for something. Well, Sandhills um, as well was that starting point for something really exciting in golf that's continued through to everywhere else in the world. These like kind of out of the out of the way locations that are brilliant for golf that people travel to, right? And I think Sandhills proved to Mike what was possible, and Bandon proved to the golfing public what was possible. So. You know, Sandhills was like the lighting the touch paper and Bandon was the boom. Yeah. Uh, and without Sandhills, there might not be Bandon. And then without Bandon, there's no stream song, Sand uh, Sand Valley, you know, any number, Forest Dunes. I mean, none of those probably exist if it isn't for Mike uh, seeing what was possible at Sandhills. Remember, Sandhills is entirely private. So Sandhills was never going to be the ground zero for the sea change in the appreciation of, of Lynx golf in America because so few people saw it. But yeah. it only took Mike seeing it to realize what was possible with Bandon. So 
you're right. You know, banding created a sea change in the appreciation of golf in America. You know, in my head, up until Bandon, people pointed at Augusta National as the poster child for the ultimate golf experience in the world. That is our everything wanted to be Augusta National. How close could you get to that? 70 greenkeepers, you know, amazing yeah. turf quality, flower beds everywhere, perfect babbling brooks. And yet it's as far away from golf in Scotland as you could possibly get. Uh, and Bandon sort of repositioned that and said, golf doesn't have to be like that. Golf can be completely simple and authentic, but to do so, it needs to be through a beautiful landscape. And that's what I think Bandon really proved was golf needs to be in a compelling, beautiful landscape. And if you can do that, golfers will travel the ends of the earth to find it. Yeah, very much so. I've uh, I just spoke to a guy who's the Fort Frodi, who was the guy who founded um, Lofton Links way up in the north of Norway, and they they've got a lot of people traveling there, which is it's not it's miles away from anyone who plays golf. Really, it's quite yeah. amazing. Yeah, um, and that's Bandon's the exact same. So, moving on from Bandon, um. You seem to have kind of, you went from Bandon to then a period where you start to design golf courses that were kind of more controversial, more penal in the Castle course and a few others. Um, and then you've come back to that kind of, I don't know, there's been an evol- evolution in your golfing uh, philosophy from Bandon being this kind of open, easier track and f- friendlier to play mm-hmm. to now easier I would, I might not, not easier with. sorry sorry not <laughs> easier but how do you feel about that when you went uh, to start taking on projects like uh, the castle after abandon you know it's something i've spoken at great length about you know i i abandon opens when i'm 30 years old how old are you james 33 so 33 so three years ago you know yeah. yeah, Javier's uh, more my age in our 50s, yeah. So Bandon opens when I'm 30. When you're 30, you think you know a lot, but actually you still don't know very much at all. No. And so at, at 30, Bandon opens. I have this massive world stage that I suddenly get delivered onto, and yet I still know very little. And so it probably took me the better part of another decade to, to really start to learn my art. You know, Bandon was created out of pure instinct. You know, it, it was created in the model of what I knew to be true through nothing but instinct. You know, I played Carnoustie and uh, St. Andrews and Turnberry and Glen Eagles my whole life up until that point. So I didn't know anything else. I, I didn't know a golf course that wasn't on amazing terrain looked like, much less how to build one. So as I got these opportunities to create courses that weren't on perfect terrain, I was learning my, I was developing my skill set. I was developing my philosophy. uh, And in so doing, uh, there was a high degree of experimentation. Uh, I was also being told that golf needed to be uh, more challenging. Remember at this point, uh, and bear in mind, you were 12 years old at this point, James. 
Tiger Woods was at the height of his career. I mean, yeah. every, every, every golf developer, every golf course architect was saying, well, we have to tiger proof golf courses. Uh, we have to get golf courses that are in a top 100 ranking. And the biggest ranking at that point was Golf Digest. Yeah. I mean, uh, a, a mention in Golf Digest at that point was a career maker. Uh, and I was being mentioned frequently in Golf Digest. And their rankings criteria said resistance to scoring was was their number one thing. So everything was pushing architecture, including me, towards difficulty. Uh, and it wasn't pushing golf towards playability or fun or the ability to recover. Uh, so I, I probably was heavily influenced by the business of golf to make courses that were that had high resistance to scoring. The the castle course is kind of a special case. You know, the, the castle course, to touch on that for a moment, the, the, the powers that be at the Lynx Trust decided to build a new golf course and the piece of land that was available that they could do it on was not very strong. It was a 220 yeah. acres of farm field that was growing potatoes in it when I first saw it, uh, devoid of vegetation devoid of topography largely uh, what it had was proximity to the to the old town and a pretty good view into uh, the east sands uh, and across the river or across the estuary to Carnoustie so what it, what should I do as probably at that point the only Scottish architect working yeah should I say no? No, and let the Lynx Trust go hire an American, no. uh, or should I say yes and try and make the very best out of, you know, a sow's ear, as we would say, and try and make a silk purse? Uh, I, I thought it was an obvious decision. I, I needed to take on the challenge that the Lynx Trust laid out. If I didn't do it, then it was still going to get built, and an American architect was almost certainly going to be selected. It may well have been Jack Nicholas. Uh, and something different would have been built. So I tried to build something that would stand the test of time, that would ne would inevitably be controversial, because everything that happens at St. Andrews is controversial. I, uh, I have a massive amount of respect for you, actually, around that the Castle course, because uh, it is a Marmite golf course for a lot of people. I'm, I'm a fan of it. And I, and I knew that it would be. And to the Americans who might listen listen to this, Marmite's not available in the U.S. 50% uh, of the people gag when they smell Marmite, including me. And 50% of the people will eat it with a spoon, which is my wife. And uh, well, there you go. I hate the stuff and she loves the stuff. And so when we went into the castle course, you would not be surprised to know that my father told me, you will not, it doesn't matter what you do, half the people are going to bitch about it. So you'll never please them. Make sure you build something that in your deathbed you can feel proud of. And that's what I told my own team on the ground. Let's build something we're proud of and not worry about the haters because haters going to hate. So I... let's build something that we think we love and be willing to defend it for the rest of your natural life. <clears throat> I completely agree. I completely agree. Um, I had a similar chat with Martin Ebert about the new hole at uh, Royal Liverpool. There'll be more people going to Royal Liverpool now with that par three 
than there ever was because people want to go to controversy. They want to go to somewhere different. They want um, to know if, if they agree with the controversy on what, do they like Marmite or not? Yeah, and absolutely. I, I have, I, I probably see it daily. Half the people that talk to me about the castle course, I say, well, did it, did it kick your butt? You know, did you hate it? And half of them say yes. And half of them say, what are you talking about? I absolutely loved it. And, you know, I, I don't, know that I could want more than that. I, if I if I had created, or me and my team, it's fair to say it was much more than just me. If all of the people involved in creating the castle course had gone to keep 90% of people happy, I guarantee we would have built nothing other than vanilla. I also figured that St. Andrews has been adjusting the old course for literally hundreds of years. But they're adjusting something that's nearly perfect. You know, they're taking something that's that's so unique and beautiful and loved, and they're making these small incremental adjustments, even now, to, to make the course even better for today's golfer. I figured if we were bold and we built something that was really bold, St. Andrews would have literally millennia to tweak and adjust that course to make it better and better and better if we built something that was truly benign that nobody really cared about and no one talked about where would be the impetus to make those small incremental changes over decades or even millennia so at every step of creating the castle course i said go bold be bold yeah. think big and uh, we will let time be the judge and time at st andrews passes in in generations so i think that what we did at at the castle course i think everyone all of my team is proud of it and i think that what we created may not be fully appreciated for another two generations um while we're on this point actually i want to ask you about design philosophy and um but we'll come back to your your story and design philosophy throughout the years, but more um, we broached it when you were talking about uh, the fact that you're encouraged to build difficult golf courses. Do you think right now we're encu- you're encouraged to build something that's um, very uh, it's more entertaining? It's more it's more about a feel good course. Um, do you think there's going to be a cycle that changes going uh, that it's going to go back to that more difficult style? Or do you think we're now go- going for the feel good and that's going to be where we go stick for? Well, I guess I have a few thoughts. One is we're not building nearly as many golf courses as we were 20 years ago. So uh, there, there's very few courses being built. All of those few courses that are being built, I don't think you have to worry. Plenty of them are still really difficult. There's yeah. plenty of very difficult courses still being built. In fact, I would argue the vast majority of those courses still being built are very difficult for the average golfer. And the average golfer is hitting a 200-yard drive, can't hit it straight, and is trying to break 100. That that guy, when you offer him a fairway that's 30 yards wide, he's not going to hit it. When so, you're building a golf course, do you what's your do you have a bracket of uh, golfers or golfer type A that you think of more than anyone else? 
Yes, probably the average golfer. We're we're standing on the average guy's tee that's sixty two to sixty five hundred yards long, and we're wondering how they would attack the golf hole, fail, which they're going to do most of the time, and then how that failure is not a complete death sentence. How are they going to have some opportunity to recover with the next shot being really good and maybe getting back to par, or the next shot being mediocre and still having bogey in mind, or the next shot being terrible and still being able to find it and finish out the hole with the same ball. And if we can achieve that on every hole, I can then take a few steps back and think, okay, now we've got a plus two playing the same hole and all he cares about is birdie. That's all he has in his head. So how do we get that player to feel like that is, how are they going to attack the hole to try and make birdie? And when we when they fail, how do we make sure that bogey is now a definite opportunity? You know, yeah. we basically took par off the table. Yeah, so, yeah. You're going to attack for birdie and you fail. I'm going to make you, I'm going to make bird bogey the punishment. If you're an average golfer and you're just trying to get through, I'm going to make, you know, bogeys and double bogeys probably not that hard. If you're a really good golfer off the tips and you're chasing birdies, I'm going to get my stick out and beat you if you don't execute correctly. Do you mind going through design techniques that you use to or do you want to keep that secret is that your no no, no. no it's, it's simple the, the the technique is very simple you're you're designing a hole that has an aggressive line of attack right and that okay. aggressive line of attack i'm going to defend and the minute you move off that aggressive line of attack i'm going to defend it a lot less to the point that i'm not going to defend it at all so if you've got a hole that dog, I mean, in the very simplest terms, if you've got a, dog, a hole that dog legs right and the way to attack it is to be tight inside on the right edge, I will make that, if you don't pull it off, I'm going to put you in jail. <laughs> but if you're not willing to attack it and you want to hit the ball way out left, I'm probably going to let you. I might yeah. make the fairway 100 yards wide with nothing in your way out left. So if you want to hit a three wood all the way out left with nothing in your way, you might be left with a four iron into a green that's impossible to stop it on. So your chances of birdie are damn near none. But I'll let you, I'll give you it. And I say that all the time for our team. Like if someone wants to play away from trouble, let them, give it to them. But yeah, you're, you're going to have, that's going to make life all the more difficult. So to a good golfer, I, I'm a single-digit golfer. I, I I want to perceive that attacking line, and I want to I want to know. Okay, if I take on that attacking line and I don't pull it off, how bad is the punishment? If the punishment, you know, would allow me to rescue par again, then I'm going to be much more willing to take that attacking line. That attacking line means lost ball, definite double then maybe I'm not quite so keen on on being so aggressive, but other players might. So that's where it sits. That is the essence of strategic design. You're, you're allowing a player to pick their poison. They can pick the poison early. They can pick it late. They can pick a lot of poison. They can pick no poison at all. 
And so my job, our job as designers is to find interesting ways to continually mix that up so that you're left trying to play chess against us and figure out which option you're willing to take. And by creating playable golf, the, the, the essence of that is to allow the average golfer to make bogey all day long. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to allow a good golfer to make birdie all day long. It is possible to uh, do both. I, I think what I've learned, guys, over the years is that challenge and playability are not two ends of the scales of justice. They are, they do, they are not connected. I can build a golf course that's extremely playable and yet pretty challenging against par. That doesn't necessarily mean that if I make one that's really playable, the challenge goes way down. It, it might go way down to shoot 100, but it doesn't go way down to break 70. Still difficult. There's, um, yeah, no, it's a very fair point. Very the interesting. Course, the, the old course would be my poster child. You can shoot 90 on the old course any given day. It's not that hard. Can't lose a golf ball, can't miss a green largely. You know, you can four putt every freaking green. They're huge, right? <laughs> so could you shoot 90 on a bad day? Hell yes. Can you break 70 on your best day? No. It takes a lot to break 70 on the old course, even in benign conditions. But it's really easy to shoot 90, even in a gale. I remember uh, playing the old course with a bunch of old boys back when I was 18, just trying to smash the ball everywhere. And uh, the old boy hit it 200. And I remember it really was the reason that I opened my eyes up to how good the old course was, was the fact that him hitting it 200 yards was it always almost in a better position than I was trying to smash it every single time and that was the beauty of the old course that distance didn't really matter at all it was all about where you were yeah position over power yeah Uh, and another thing that I think of these days is swing speed you know I, I don't know that there's enough conversation around swing speed we keep talking about play it forward and trying to get golfers to to move to a tee that's composite to their handicap and yet really it should be composite to their swing speed i mean you could have a a really good golfer whose swing speed is in the 70s well just because they're good there's no way that that guy could play from seven thousand yards just doesn't have enough power to get up there Uh, and then similarly with second shots into greens you, you could have one of those old boys that you're talking about if he's playing the average american parkland golf course with push-up greens you know where the greens are up on a pedestal he doesn't have the swing speed to stop the ball on top of it that's where the classic links game is so uh, populous that allows everyone to play because you as a bomber james can decide to put a six iron in there with a high trajectory and high spin and get that six iron to stop that old boy's hitting a rescue club the same distance he's got no chance of stopping that ball so he needs to be able to use accuracy without backspin to get that ball to bounce and roll and lose energy and roll onto the putting surface so that he could work his swing speed against your fast swing speed. And yet you could still have a game. So what, what I try and do on everything that we build is give those slower swing speed golfers who still have accuracy 
a method, a route where they can use that to read the contours, play for the bounce, and still get into a pin position, especially one that's tucked. Um, you've you've commented a wee bit about the uh, different tees. Someone turned to me the other day and described it as slopes on a ski, like ski slopes. Um, that if you can't handle the black slope, then get off the back tee. You know, it's uh, it's a quite a good way of analogy that people don't really realize that it is a lot trickier than you think. Um, the reason I'm bringing it up though is the fact and the swing speed stuff is. Uh, what do you think about the changes in ball that have been discussed regularly about the uh, – do you think that as a designer, the bi- bifurcation or whatever it's called of the golf ball, um, as a designer, do you want golf to go down the route of controlling the equipment? Um, well, to make a, a- I think I think you, the word I would – I would lean into is bifurcation, right? I think bifurcation is inevitable. It, it has to happen. Uh, we we can't. Golf is is basically two different games. You've got golf that's played by amateurs who are never going to be professional golfers, and amateurs are largely playing golf for and their own entertainment, right? They're they're not playing for money, uh, prestige. There might be some competition in it, but. The vast majority of golf, just like the vast majority of skiing or tennis or any other sport, we're playing as a recreational pastime, a social interaction. If you can give me a club and a ball that make the game a little more fun, I'm all for it. Let the manufacturers do whatever they need to do, just like they've done in tennis and skiing uh, to make the game more fun. I don't want to play with an old wooden tennis racket any more than I want to ski with uh, two meter skis, right? <laughs> yeah. However, the minute you talk about the professional game, it's a whole different ball of wax. It's entirely different. When you've got the the top tour players able to have a swing speed now that's 140 miles an hour and a ball speed that's pushing 200 miles an hour, we have a game that is that cannot be played on the same surface as the rest of us if they're going to play the same equipment. So the ball would be the easiest thing to limit. And it, it happens in so many other sports where the ball is is limited. You know, tennis, the, the ball is different. You know, baseball, they use wooden bats. I mean, there's all sorts of reasons where the game is, uh, the professional game is bifurcated and they're using different equipment. So it would seem to me that uh, using a ball uh, for professional tournaments that enables them to still play the classic courses without overpowering them would make sense. I, I want to see what it's like to see uh, John Rahm play a four iron into a golf green. Yeah. I mean, that, that's gone now. When, when does that ever happen? Never. Par Never. fives. A par five, maybe. <laughs> maybe. Yeah, it's I mean, probably still sitting, hitting six iron. <laughs> well, you think of it, a 600-yard par five, that would be considered long, even on tour. Yeah. John, John Rahm's going to hit it high 300s if there's any run at all. So now he's sitting at 200 yards, you know, 220 into that green. Yeah. It's a six iron. Yeah. It's scary, so, isn't it? And it's not going to stop unless we limit the golf ball. I, I want to see John Rahm hit. Uh, 
290-yard drive on that hole and be left 310 in and hit driver off the deck. <laughs> you know? Yeah, absolutely. Woods, you know? Uh, I would love to see these guys hitting uh, long irons in and, and get them to use the ground game. Isn't it amazing? If you said, if, if we cut right to the chase and we said, okay, all we care about is entertaining the audience in professional golf. Is there any other reason for professional golf other than entertaining the audience? No, it's the only reason. What is the most fun thing to watch in professional golf? If, if we talked about the holes that we like the most, the 16th Augusta with the pin in the front left corner, watching them hit it high right and that ball trickling to the hole. How much fun is that? It's so much more fun when you watch a professional golfer hit a shot that doesn't hit the ground and stop six feet later. Yeah, It's tedious. Absolutely. We want to see the ball roll. When we see the ball roll, golf gets exponentially more fun. So creating conditions where professional golf is playing for the bounce would make the game so much more fun. Why not try Eden Mills' The Guard Bridge blended malt whiskey or golf gin? Visit our sponsor's site, www.edenmill.com, for more information. Eden Mills St. Andrews, bringing the art of distilling back to St. Andrews. Would it, um, is that, what would you do to be able to enable that? They have to play longer clubs. They can't, the minute you put a six iron in his hand, he's going to stop it. So put five iron in his hand, might not stop it. Put a four iron in his hand, he definitely doesn't stop it. Get them to play courses that, that are firm and fast. Turn the damn water off. Yeah. Dry the thing out. You know, yeah. make them make them play for the bounce. Make it so they can't back everything up. You know, it would be so much more fun. That's why the only true major is the open. Do you think? Ah, hell yes! It's the most fun of all because they they don't know they 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 have to use all of their guile to figure out what that ball is going to do once it lands. If you're playing at Augusta and it rains, which it did last year, they just throw darts. Yeah, they might as well just put them on the putting green and let the best putter win. Yeah, it becomes so much easier. Yeah, it's it's. It, what's the point? So I would dry. It'd be so much more fun if if every golf tournament uh, they limited the golf balls so these guys have to play longer shots, lower trajectory, less spin, and then dried these things out so that they were playing golf courses that were brown. I mean, yeah. it would be hilarious. You know, it wouldn't be hilarious. It would be that then you'd have you'd be back to watching the Lee Trevinos and the Seve Ballesteroses. You know, the guys who could play shots. You know, and now we've got guys who just play like they're on a range. Yeah, it's all just numbers. Repetition. Like, just tell me where it hit it. Yeah, that's so true. It's so true. And when you're thinking about. Uh, Doing your design work, do you ever think about the pro golfer whenever you're... Do- uh, rarely. Rarely. Not, you know, it, not in the it, mind. It's, uh, 
You know, it's all about distance. You know, it, it really is. You know, at the minute that the tour get involved, you are 74 an absolute minimum at sea level, but really you're pushing 75, 7,600 yards uh, length of a golf course to, to get them to play anything other than a wedge into the greens. Uh, Which is so, scary, right? And yeah, I guess I mean, they might have land it takes up. I guess the Open is uh, lucky that um, uh, it's always firm and fast, or tries to be firm and fast, so it can get away with a bit of the a bit of the shorter edge on the golf courses. And it, if we're lucky, it's windy. Yeah, big time. Yeah, um, I can imagine Troon's going to be a bit of a de- demolishing job uh, next year. Um, but I, who cares? Um, I just enjoy watching golfers struggle to hit interesting shots. I think that's the most... Now you watch someone come out of really thick rough, that is... If they pull off something like that, you really got to applaud them and say, right, that's why he's a great golfer. Um, think of uh, Watson in 09 playing Turnberry oh. and that shot into 18 that landed in front of the green. You know, it, it, it will live forever, that shot. There's eight iron. They just that, ran that, straight through. That kind of thing is what makes golf truly magical. Uh, and the, the truly magical, that, that stuff is getting smaller and smaller. Those truly magical moments don't happen as much as they used to because the, the equipment, the, the condition of the courses, you know, I think that this is a really deep conversation, but I think it speaks to the rise of, of live golf, the, the, the PGA Tour coming down, Golf just isn't as spectator friendly as it used to be. We're we're just not enthused to watch golf the way we used to watch it, uh, and you know I think that that is to some extent the the power of the golfers, the equipment, the golf courses. It just doesn't have the drama in it that it used to, and that's why the the Open played on the the rotation in the British Isles is, is so appealing because. The ground game is still a large part of it. We get to see the ball land and then something else happens. Yeah. It's not near as much fun when it lands and it stops instantly. No. Like, oh, okay, good shot. Explain to me um, what's the difference between that and fair golf. What's fair golf? I don't really, I never really got my head around this. Life and golf share that. Neither of them are fair. My father told me that from the minute I could understand it. Life is like golf. It's not fair. So there, you ha- that's what makes golf such an appealing pastime, right, is we don't always get the breaks we deserve. Sometimes they're better than we deserved and sometimes they're not. Uh, and the professional game seeks to remove all of that and create absolute predictability. And in the spectating of sport, predictability is your enemy yeah we want the if i'm spectating sport i want drama and drama is unpredictability i want something that i didn't predict to happen yeah 100 you know? percent. absolutely Tiger won the masters right a few years ago because the guys in front of him couldn't put it on the green on number 12 yeah you know that, that it's ultimate it's drama well what's the point in um What's the point in betting on a sport if it's completely predictable? So, you know, golf at its best 
has that unpredictability. And some people would argue that that is fair and unfair. And I would say, you know, that's what measures out a true champion. Uh, and maybe a true champion is in life as well as golf is dealing with things that you might think were unfair, but just get over it, get on with it, you know, get to the next shot and make that one work. Um, right. I completely agree. And it's been absolutely fascinating listening to uh, the philosophy of golf because I, I think we're on the exact same page. But I do, I would like to start talking about a few of your other golf courses, if that's okay. Go for it. Um, we have Javi here who um, is actually wearing uh, the Comporta Dunes hat. I like it. Let's, can you just walk through what's, what you've done there and um, just the whole project and give us an understanding of why people should go there? Uh, well, it's a project that took me 15 years from more than that. 2006 <laughs> was my first visit. So good grief. 17 <laughs> years from my first visit till opening day. Longest in my career. Phenomenal site. It's on the Atlantic coast between the Algarve and Lisbon. Uh, the original developer uh, didn't really know a whole lot about golf. So kind of let me do my thing. Uh I knew that I could build a pine barren, sand barren, scrub golf course, a bit like a Mediterranean version of Sunningdale. Yeah. Uh, and the owner was going to let me do it. So it's big and brawny and wide. And it, it, it really uh, asks you to think about the ground game. Uh, it's all fescue apart from the greens. So, uh, there's lots of opportunity to think your way through it. It really celebrates the the pine scrub of that part of Portugal, which is these big tall pine trees with sort of heathery scrub underneath. Uh, it's pure white sand everywhere, hundreds of feet deep. So there's lots of exposed sand, big, wow. uh, huge greens. Uh you know, just like I was saying earlier, you can pick the attacking line, and if you pull it off, you're you can make birdies. If you don't, you're going to struggle to rescue a bir a bogey. Uh, if you're just an average dude trying to get around the golf course and not lose golf balls, you can shoot ninety on your worst day. Uh, but I think that once you do that, the next time you play, which is hopefully the very next day, you're going to think, oh, you know, I might be able to make a few birdies. Suddenly, you start trying to cut a few corners, and you realize, hmm, she, this is, she offers uh... up defense. <laughs> um, so, uh, you must are you very proud of it? Because there's been a lot of really a uh, lot of noise about how good it is. Uh, of course, I'm I'm proud of everything we did. I'm proud yeah. of the castle course, even from the guy that hated it. <laughs> uh, of course, I'm proud of it. You know the the thing about building a, a golf course, which really celebrates nature is it takes time to mature you know you have to let mother nature embrace the golf course back in you have to let nature grow all the native plants back in uh the the staff have to learn how to maintain a natural golf course out there uh the grasses the fescue grasses are extremely rare in Portugal. I think it's the only golf course in Southern Europe that's ever even tried to grow fescues. So uh, it's going to take a little while for the, the staff there to learn how to 
get a golf course to be firm and fast. It's it's not their thing. So yeah. we're we're learning how to do that. And uh, I'd ask anyone that goes to use a little patience. Uh, you know, we're still working through that to get the Portuguese to understand that you know, dry and a little bit brown doesn't mean it's going to die tomorrow. So there's still some education to happen there to get us there. Uh, but we've made a hell of a good start. The the players that have played it uh, have loved it thus far, uh, good and bad players. So uh, I I would like I'd love to think that it could be uh, a ground zero in Southern Europe, the way that Bandon has been a ground zero in North America. Uh, allow the courses in Europe, Southern Europe especially to take a lead from Northern Europe instead of a lead from the US uh, and allow that style of golf to celebrate the beautiful landscapes and not create parkland golf courses. So we shall see. Why are all the people that are the most knowledgeable people about golf courses in the world, the people that are highly respected and paid the big bucks to actually do the job, build a golf course? all saying firm and fast, but they're rejected by society, particularly in America and south of Spain and um, inland golf. What, what's the thinking there? Is, is it because people like to, don't like to change their golf course? or what's, I don't really understand. Well, I, the average golfer likes wet and you know, easier. So they want a golf ball that's sitting up on the on nice green grass and they want to play it into a green where if they throw it right at the pin, it when they get up there, it's right next to the pin. So I think that there's uh, an education process that we need to go through, uh, especially here in the US, that the, the, the golfing IQ uh, is still relatively low. It's, it's not high. And so for a lot of Americans, and this may come as a shock to you, James, if I ask a lot of American golfers, what do you think of the British Open? They may well say to me, yeah, it's fun to watch, but boy, they just don't take care of those courses. <laughs> and I say, no, 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 that's that's on purpose. And they say, <laughs> what? Are you kidding me? That's on purpose? Don't they have irrigation? Can't they water that thing? Say no, they have irrigation. They they choose not to. They do what? So there is an education process to get people to understand, and and Bandon Dunes and courses like it are the beginning. And that golfing IQ has definitely risen since Bandon Dunes, uh, and we need to continue to do that to get golfers to understand. But I would say that the firm and fast thing, the biggest change we could make would be doing that on tour would be getting the PGA Tour to, yeah. to choose venues where firm and fast uh, is good uh, and then to roll that out in their own tournaments. I think the USGA already gets it. They, yeah. they take their championships to tournament venues that are firm and fast. And so the PGA Tour, if they could do the same thing, I think that would go a long way to bringing their spectator, their viewership back I completely and, agree with that. And whether lives, survives, dies, merges, whatever the hell happens, I have no idea. I think for spectators week in and week out to want to be drawn to golf, firm and fast would be a good way of starting. The, the tour to some courses that are firm and fast. 
Yeah, but there's a lot of money and discussions that need to be had there that might not. <laughs> um, well, you know, for all of the, the, the controversy, Liv could do that. Yeah, it's true. They're less affected. They don't have major sponsors that say, no, I want to at such and such a club. You know, Liv could say, hey, we're going to go pick the best venues. Whether they could get those venues to agree would be a different matter. But, you know, we take a live tournament to Chambers Bay in Seattle, play it firm and fast. That's That I would probably want to watch. But if you go play it somewhere that's damp and wet and pitch marks on every approach shot, not that interesting. No, it's pretty boring watching a ball just land and stay still. Yeah. Um, and something else you said about uh, com- um, Comporta talking about the natural side of it coming um, kind of uh, coming into the golf course and the f- natural flowers taking up the space and um, I know you did Mac Dunes um, which is for people who don't know almost the most natural golf course in Scotland in terms of you've got very little intervention on that course don't do am I right almost none so- almost none what I've actually, I know this sounds ridiculous, but I was wearing a Max Dunes hat at Edinburgh Festival. Yeah. And someone tapped me in the shoulder and it was the, it was the daughter, Jack, a daughter, uh, sorry, uh, uh, is it Ella and Jack Keating, who are the, oh, yes. The yeah, daughter Brian and Keating. son of Brian's. Yeah. Um, so small world, but they saw my back Dunes hat with the sheep and got excited. But uh, explain to the, viewers what our listeners what actually happened at mac dunes and because i don't think people really understand what happened there and how so you Ma- built that golf course macranish dunes that there's a old club called macranish golf club that i had known my parents my grandparents had all been there from uh you know generations before uh and playing that course as a kid which i did every single summer my whole childhood fantastic uh, golf course Fantastic golf course. We would look at all the dunes all the way to Westport, which is the other end of the bay. And my dad, a greenkeeper, would say, my goodness, you know, there's another three or four golf courses uh, around this bay if, if only they would build them. So when I became a golf course designer, I knew that this land existed. So to cut a very long story short, I ended up partnering with Brian Keating, who's an Australian, uh, to create Macrahanish dunes. The challenge, however was that whole bay is designated a site of special scientific interest. Uh, It is the only place in Europe where uh, a pyramidal orchid flowers. So it's extremely uh, fragile of European ecological interest. Uh, And so building a golf course is almost a non-starter. However, we went to the powers that be, the Scottish natural heritage, and we made a very impassioned plea that was backed up with a lot of science to say, if we could build a golf course, the golf course would generate the funds and the interest to protect uh, the, the most sensitive parts of these sand dunes in perpetuity. And right now the land is used for winter grazing for cattle. The cattle go down into the hollows and they lay down in there and they defecate down in there and they do all the things that you would not want to happen to protect the orchids that are down in there. 
if we could build a golf course, we could identify where all these really precious spots are, avoid them, uh, and then make sure that the land, all of the land is managed to protect these orchids and other precious species forever. Uh, and believe it or not, uh, Scottish Natural Heritage bought that uh, proposal, uh, but the conditions were extremely uh, limiting. And the conditions said something like, we will allow you to build 18 putting surfaces and nothing else. So even the fairways, you can mow them, but you can't do anything else. You can't cultivate, you can't reseed, can't do anything. So when you go play Macrohanish Dunes, the only thing that got designed and built were 18 putting surfaces. Everything else is how we found it. Amazing. Very so cool. It's the epitome of minimalist golf course design. So occasionally when someone says, well, you should have moved this hole or you should have done that, I nod and say, that's a great idea. <laughs> and I don't go into explaining that none of that was possible. In terms of actually moving on to what you just said, in terms of golf courses that you have designed, is there anything that you would like to go back and go, actually, I think this would make a an interesting change or is there anything you've played and gone at um, maybe i should could have done this this is that well, happen I mean, all the time i i spent an entire winter back at band and dunes in 2018 2019 in advance of the u.s amateur going to bandon and i uh, along with my team we rebuilt every single bunker we made pretty drastic changes on three or four of the golf holes and so that was 20 years after it opened uh, we made a number of adjustments based on 20 years of play, uh, 20 years of winters that had caused some erosion. Uh, so, yeah, every course. I mean, there, there are numerous changes that have been made to the Castle Course, uh, Mac Dunes. Uh, I would think that throughout my lifetime, I would be going back to courses we've built. And on the heels of their success, we would have the wherewithal to make further tweaks and adjustments. I would, I'm sure that at, uh, at Dunas, at Comporta, we will be back there in the years ahead, hopefully on the heels of, of lots of golfers loving it and playing it and saying, okay, the feedback we're getting, they don't really like this, or this is difficult to maintain, or this could be better, and we'll make tweaks and adjustments. I think if you're pushing any project to be the very best it can be, I'm always telling my team and myself, you know, push the edges of the envelope. And if we're doing so, then we're likely to push a little too hard occasionally. And if we push a little too hard, uh, hopefully the thing is still a success and we get to come back and figure out where we maybe took one step too far and we can make adjustments. Um, I was on that point about the adjustment adjustments i've got a few questions that i want to ask you that are probably more quick fire but if you get excited about one just go for it uh one of them is historic golf courses what is there any hole that you've sat on a historic golf course like snandrews Troon, wherever and gone these are the this is what i'd change this 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 could be fantastic if i just got my hands on that oh well the easy one's the 18th at macrohanish golf club that's the worst hole, and oh, it's devastating, <laughs> isn't it? That was an easy one. You, you softballed me there. Um, uh, so yeah, that that one's <clears throat> is the the greatest start in Scottish golf with the worst finish, and they're next to one another. 
Uh, so I, I would love to be uh, given the opportunity to uh, demolish the little pro shop that's up by the first tee and build the 18th green right next to the first tee up there and make the 18th green at uh, Macrahanish every bit as good as the first. And it would go from 96th in Golf Magazine's current rankings to top 50. Oh, I completely agree. The <laughs> even the last you could do you could probably do something last three holes or probably. But, but uh, I actually I, when I was down there not long ago, I was asking the captain. I was like, "Come on, tell me, are you going to get someone to come in? You're doing well in your revenues. Come on, get someone. Just do it for us. <laughs> the world of golf yeah. wants it. The world of golf <laughs> does want it. I'd be I'd do it for free if they want to ask me. Oh, shall I? I could put you in touch. You put me in touch. Yeah, I that would be free. that's that wouldn't be too difficult. I'll tell you. Yeah, um, you know they only have five greenkeepers. Uh, I probably did know that. You know, I I, I I was a member at Macrahanish for many, many, many years, and it was only relatively recently that I didn't renew my country membership. It's a really cool place. It is. Um, the. Okay, favorite designer. What's your favorite architect? Historically, you know, that or... was an easy one too. You know, I spent my childhood around at Glen Eagles, so James Braid uh, would probably be up there. Uh, Colt would probably be uh, a close, uh, an equal first. Let's put it there. I'd pick, pick Braid and Colt, and it's a question I get asked here a lot in the US, and they're always disappointed because I don't pick McKenzie or you know, Seth Rayner or none of these guys worked in the UK and that's where I was raised. So I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm almost certainly not going to be picking the ones they want. And they say braid, who's he? It sounds like you quite enjoy winding up the Americans. <laughs> uh, I, I enjoy, <laughs> I enjoy giving them a more global view. Let's put it that way. I, I yeah. enjoy the fact that, you know, I say, Hey, I don't know if you know this, but golf didn't start here. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, although I will concede that it is an American game now. It's no longer a European game. It's a it's an American game. The American tour is the tour. Uh, and so they are the biggest influence in the world of golf, bar without doubt, which is why I live here. I've lived here most of my adult life. It's not, yeah, well, that's the thing. It's the money in the market. It's just fantastic. Wait till Saudi build their 40 golf courses. Um when you first did Bandon and all these golf courses, it looks like you very much go to a site and try and fit the best golf course on this uh, on the parcel of land without doing as much with as little movement as you can. Um, but in terms of say we go down the McDonald route of template holes, is there any par threes, par fours, par fives that really inspire you as a golf designer? You know, I, I think the the template holes are. Uh, we're we're almost at a point where there's been so many golf courses built and so many basic templates used that I'm not sure how many more exist. <clears throat> so it's quite funny that sometimes someone will say to me, "Oh well, you know the the second at Mammoth Dunes is a is a, a leaving hole," and I and I have to think about it and think, "Oh yeah, you're right, it is." But I didn't start there. It, yeah. It's just that the 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 basic building blocks of strategy. I uh, you doesn't matter what you build someone could say well that's that is similar to this template hole or that template hole personally i don't i I rarely if ever start the design of a golf hole with a template hole 
It, it's, it's, it's just not something that resonates with me. I, I'm not, I don't love it when I hear architects say, you know, uh, well, I built these 18 holes and this is what I did. You know, this one's a redan and this one's a cape hole and this one's this and that. And you think, I think to myself, you know, I'm not sure where the creativity is. Like, go go figure out each and every hole. Not a single hole at Comporta started as a template hole. And if they are a template hole, it wasn't on purpose. Yeah. Um, well, on that point, is there any golf holes that changed your perspective on golf? Uh, that we did or that... Whether you did it or there's a golf course you've walked it on and you played a golf hole and gone, wow, that really has just changed my perspective on design. Well, I, I, I think what the bit, the course that influenced me the most was probably old Macrahash. You know, playing that as a kid, you realize that there are no rules to golf course architecture. There are holes that cross one another. There are blind shots into wild greens uh, there are all sorts of quirks and whimsical things on that golf course that could not, would not apply to the average American parkland golf course. They, they'd just be so out of place that people would probably hang you. And yet there it is, ranked in the top 100 in the world. Phenomenal. Yeah. So I realized right at the beginning of my career that the only thing that you can lack is imagination. If you can dream it up, then there probably isn't. There's no such thing as wrong. You couldn't say, oh, well, it's this is technically wrong. You could say, I don't like it. But if there's a tee at one end and a cup at the other, it's a golf hole. Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. Well, that's a, that is a fascinating uh, perspective because – a lot of people in design believe that there is rules that you can't do this, can't do that, can't do that. And as yourself being a top designer or architect, it's, it's great to hear that um, you don't care about those. <laughs> well, I, uh, one of the things I, I think about fairly often is the the books that were written in the early part of the, the 20th century, particularly Mackenzie's little green book of golf architecture, I, he wrote that book with a whole bunch of basic rules of thumb. You know, it, all other things being equal, the T's should be flat. All other things being equal, you know, the course should start with a par four. All other things being equal, the two nines should be about the same, right? And that book was probably written for to be cast around planet Earth to places he couldn't get to and no golf course architect could get to that some British army officer building his own golf course in India could read that book and think, okay, if I kind of vaguely follow the the things that are written in this book, I might come out with a halfway decent golf course. Instead, (laughs) what happened was a bunch of professional architects took that book and imagined it was the tablets from, you know, Moses. Like like they couldn't be broken. This is the rules from God himself. You know, you can't build anything than a par 72 that's 36, 36, that's opens and closes with par fours, that there's balanced, you know, two par fours and two or two par threes and two par fives on, you know, blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, you're just cookie cuttering golf course design. It just becomes very, very predictable. Um, well, on that point, why 
so you look at the top 100 list of any list, it doesn't really matter which one, but um, the top 10, top 20 tends to be fairly standard. And they're all 1920 or, or older golf courses or majority of the top recognized golf courses are for historic, right? They're, they're historic. They've held really big tournaments and they're private. But well, why why is golf course architecture not? De- um, it's definitely developed. But why is it? Why is the winning formula still back in the twenties? Oh, is it? I know that's it's a, not. I, but I'm just saying. It? I'm not. I'm not sure that's true. I, I think but, that the people who rate golf courses are ex- are highly influenced by the history of the game and the exclusivity of a private club. Well, there you go. I mean, that's it, what I was trying to. I was wondering if you took. If you took away all of the history on the old course, I'd, all of it. I've stood up and said for years. That is the, the old course the best golf course in Scotland? Probably not. The, but it's the oldest. The RNA is right there. It's got a pretty cool bunch of holes. I think the turn's terrible, but the... Okay, if you <laughs> if you took away, and it's impossible to take away, so it, it's a it's a mute point, but take away all the history, and you and I are going to go play tomorrow. We've got the nine a.m. tea time on the old course or Kings Barns, which is a better golf course? Kings Barns. Yeah, well, mm, I would say is the old- at least is good. I would, I would. Mm. I think there's more interest for me in the old course. I find it more, as you say, it's the quirkier of the two. It's definitely the quirkier of the two. It's been there longer. It's less fair, but I don't look for fair in golf. Well, you get my point. Yeah, I do get your point. I do get your point. You hold these courses up uh, on a pedestal, uh, and it somewhat is the history and somewhat is the exclusivity. You know, uh, I know that the courses that I build that are all other things being equal, two courses that are very similar. If one of them has access by the public and one of them is unbelievably hard to get a tee time, this one will rank higher than this one. Well, look at Queenwood. Queenwood's ranking very well um, for a completely private course. They won't even let me in. <laughs> the, right, okay. There's one thing I always ask everyone, but I'm going to ask you the same question twice. What's your favorite, um, which design that you've, or architectural design have you done that uh, is your kind of like baby, your, you know, the one that you want to be at the most? Not saying. I did one. uh, I was at it yesterday, actually. I did a project up on almost the Canadian border uh, in Washington state called Gamble Sands. Uh, And we built and opened it in 2014. And we're building the second 18 right now. Uh, it's it's regionally well-known. It's not Band and Dunes, but in the Northwest, pretty much it, it's very well-known. Uh, the course is in this beautiful uh, canyon looking over the Columbia River Gorge. Uh, the course is super fun to play. It's all fescue, greens included. Everything bounces and rolls and chases. And sometimes it's fair and sometimes it's not fair. Uh, it's so much fun to play. Uh, it, it's only open in the summertime. Uh, it's very busy. It's three hours from Seattle. 
and people drive three hours from Seattle, play 18 holes and drive three hours back. So if they're willing to drive longer than they played, I think that's a good testament to how much fun they had. I asked uh, David Davis, who's um, played all top 100 golf course in the world, is um, part owner of the uh, top100golfcourse.com. I asked him uh, about questions to ask you and just a few things to uh, kind of follow up on. And he said uh, to tell him that Gamble Sands is probably the feel-good golf course of the century, (laughs) which is quite a cool way of having compliment. That's good. No, it's super fun and playable. I mean, if you want to go after birdies, just like I've been saying, it gets difficult. They they held the Washington State Championship there a few years ago. Only one guy was under par, and he's the guy that won it. There you go. So uh, when you start putting pins on edges and push them back and double cut and double roll, everything gets hard. Yeah. And especially a green where you can't throw a dart, where it bounces and rolls, the best player has to be strong and smart. Yeah. Uh, a course like that, I think, delivers the best champion because he has to be strong and smart. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, well, I think, uh, what's his name? Brian Harmon showed that at uh, the Open this year. Quite amazing what he, the feat he did. It. Um, right, okay. So and my other last question I always ask everyone is top five favorite golf courses. I'm not saying it has to be all over the place. Oof. Top five I, favorites. It's not. I didn't have, do. <laughs> you can include your own designs if you want, but um, well, I'd, gamble, you, I'd put Gamble Sands in there. I'll put Gamble Sands at number five since I did it. There doesn't have to be uh, any order. Doesn't have to okay. have any order. And um, well, we've gamble had Sands to be 13. in there. Uh, Macrahanish Dunes or Macrahanish, the old course at Macrahanish, you know, influenced my life, my family's life. You know, we spent our, our summers there. Uh, so that place has a very strong family connection as well as being a huge influence to golf for me. Uh, Kings Barnes, you know, when I, I played that for the first time right after I built Bandon, I was blown away. I, it made me realize what could be possible in terms of uh, just raw creativity I mean, that Kings Barnes, for those that don't know, is not a natural golf course. It was shaped completely and utterly shaped out of nothing. Uh, and yet it looks like it's been there for a thousand years. So Kings Barnes was a massive uh, thing for me. Uh, uh, Chicago, think- Chicago Golf Club, I would pick because it's a poster child for the opposite of that. It's a fairly benign, boring site, flat doesn't have any landscape of note. Uh, there's no ocean, no canyons, no mountains, no nothing. And yet the 18 template holes are ridiculously good fun to play. And the old clubhouse is a, an honor to be in. So Chicago Golf Club, I would stick in there. And then the last one, probably have to be super conventional and just say Cypress Point. If you're going to Tell me I can't play golf anywhere else on earth except one course for the rest of my life. I'd probably be happy just to hang out at Cypress Point because I can play golf all year round on Alistair McKenzie's finest work, on the best piece of terrain golf has ever enjoyed. There's my five. I think that's very good five. I've done well there. Um, And is there anything you would say 
you've we've talked about a lot of things. Is there anything you would say to the golfing world or to our listeners that you've learned along the way in golf that you don't think people appreciate? Is there anything? Uh, I, I, I don't know that I would say anything that I wouldn't appreciate. I mean, I, I went to a, a dinner with Mike Kaiser last Thursday uh, for the Western Golf Association last Friday. And uh, there were a lot of passionate golfers there and they were telling me what they what they loved and what they hated, you know, what they liked and what they disliked. And uh, and this happens a lot in my life. And I, I try and say to them, I know that you're probably overstating this, but surely you didn't hate or dislike. You're still playing great golf. You know, whether you love Bandon and hate Pacific, I mean, really, that's probably not true. You 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 liked, you loved one just a little bit more than you loved the other one, right? Yeah. You still love them. So I, I think for a lot of golfers, unless the, if you played out all 18 holes, you were still playing golf. You still had a good time. Hopefully you were with people, you enjoy their company and hopefully you hit a few shots that you thought were worthy and you still spent your time in the great outdoors doing something to explore mother nature. So don't hate or dislike, just see good, better, best. That's probably golf. I uh, went, uh, I, I was at, I was playing at Gillen today, Gallen for most, uh, the, and uh, there's four English people from London in front of me and I asked them, so what's your tour, blah, blah. And they're like, oh, we were at Muirfield yesterday, blah, blah whatever. And I said, oh, so how did you find Muirfield? And they all four of them said, oh, I preferred uh, Gillen. And I was like, I, I don't really understand why you'd prefer it. And it turns out that all four of them just found it easier to play. That's a big part of it. So it's a big part of it is, you know, where the average golfer uh, is looking just to find it and hit it again. Yeah. Uh, and a course that allows them to find it and hit it again ranks pretty high as opposed to one where they're hunting golf balls. So I'll, I guess the other thing I would want your your listeners to know is if they're a rater in the top 100, if they're, if they're influencing that, I would love it if they tried to be somewhat impartial to the fact a course is private or not, the fact a course held a championship or not, that maybe the fact that that day it was raining or not and dis- and decide whether they think one golf course is better than another purely based on their gut. Did they have fun or not? Those four guys liked Gullin over Muirfield. That is a legitimate opinion. Yeah. Well, that, I think it, I spoke to them about it and um, it's interesting because they, they were blown away by the views at Gullin because you sit on the hill and, You've got no, amazing there's, views, there's, right? There's hardly any views at Muirfield. There's not. It's private. Yeah. And it's got history. And so yeah. you're going to, you know, the 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 general inclination is to rank it higher. That doesn't necessarily mean that one that's public uh, and doesn't have history isn't a great golf course to play. Yeah, completely agree. You know, one of my favorites is Dunaverty. You ever played Dunaverty? Annoyingly, I was down at the Springbank Whiskey Festival um, and I wasn't able to get to it. I've heard it's yeah, fantastic. So Dunaverty is a phenomenal day out. It's not private in the slightest and it hasn't got any history whatsoever. <laughs> and yet, 
you know, fabulous, fun time with your buddies. Thank you very much, David. That was fantastic to listen to you. I really find your point of view quite refreshing and I hope everyone else enjoyed. If you want to get in touch, um, it's james at top100golfcourses.com or just get in touch with me at official top100. Play fast, lunch slow. <laughs>